Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. This season devoted to educators has been an endless fountain of inspiration for me. And I'll be honest with you, I'm having an absolute blast connecting with my colleagues in education. We're four episodes into this season with four episodes to go. And the goal in part for me here is to get into conversation with people who, like me, are firmly committed to the field of education, but who devote their energies to very different facets of the field than yours truly. You know, in the first half of the season, we talked to an early years educator, we talked to an elementary school sport teacher, we talked to an elementary school guidance counselor, and in our last episode, we talked to a choral director. And all of these conversations were with colleagues of mine at the Kennedy School in Berlin. And for the back half of the season, with one exception, we're getting out of the Kennedy School and we're getting out of Berlin. It's all pretty exciting and it's very much a labor of love for me. And I'm feeling a lot of love from my listeners lately. I've had the honor of getting some heartening messages over email, on Instagram, on Facebook, from listeners old and new alike who are really digging on the education season. And I'm digging on that too. Thanks for all your kind words, everyone. I'm wicked grateful. And I'm particularly grateful today, my friends, to welcome a new patron to the Studs podcast, Miss Susan Brown. I had the distinct pleasure of teaching not one, but both of Susan's kids. They're both so bright and engaging and challenging and committed to the world of ideas. And while I don't know Susan well, I do know two things. One, While her kids were at the Kennedy School, she was a tireless ally of the institution, deeply devoted to helping the school fulfill its mission. I know she sat on the educational directorate for a few years, which I just imagined to be this terribly frustrating affair. But she did it because she cares deeply about teaching and learning. Two, and you all know this, the fruit doesn't fall so far from the tree. Thank you so much, Susan Brown, for raising awesome kids who contribute to the marketplace of ideas. And thank you for supporting this podcast. I really appreciate it. And look, my dear listener, if the time isn't right for you to donate to studs, I get it. We're good. But it would mean the world to me if you could just do this. Hit the subscribe or follow button right now. Go ahead, hit it. And then think about that friend or loved one in your life who, like you, really cares about education, and really cares about educators. And then tell them about this podcast. Shoot them a link to an episode that you love. You don't have to twist their arm at all. Perhaps just shoot them the link to this episode. Because this episode is with Daniel Jose. Daniel is a veteran social studies teacher fervently committed to the challenges and opportunities of teaching a diverse group of students in the crowded classrooms of Los Angeles, California. We discuss how he creates classroom communities committed to rigorous and empathic exploration 
of the intersection of the past and the present, the personal and the political. Now, Daniel and I have the same first name and the same job. And while we both take profound pride in what we do, I, my friends, am but a humble, bumbling fool, while Daniel, Daniel is the California Teacher of the Year and a finalist for the National Teacher of the Year. So, of course, I couldn't help but ask him what it was like to hang out at the White House and schmooze with the President of the United States. This guy, this Joe's fella, is clearly a cut above. So please join me with Daniel Jose. Mr. Daniel Jose, welcome to Studs. It is a real pleasure to be here in conversation with you. I've been excited about this. Welcome, and how do you describe what you do? Well, my most basic job description is I'm a high school history teacher. I teach uh, U.S. history, AP regular, government, and I've been doing it for, I think, 17, 18 years. My math skills are less than uh, amazing. I took algebra two, three times in high school. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a history teacher and, and you know I'm teaching teenagers and sometimes they come into my class with a rather limited kind of appreciation for the study of history. They've had some teachers that kind of turn them off from the subject. They have all these kind of expectations that they're just going to have to memorize a bunch of dates and so in my class, I try to get students to fall in love with the subject matter as I did when I was in college and, and in the teaching of history to, to develop some of their 21st century skills while they're learning about the past. What are the skills we can kind of learn and the connections we can make so that they can, uh, you know, understand this crazy world we're all trying to navigate? It's crazy indeed. Now, it's clear to me already that you weren't going to be an algebra teacher, but it's not nearly as clear to me why it is that you became a high school social studies teacher. Can you quick walk me along your path to the social studies classroom? Like, how exactly did you make the decision to do this for a living? Yeah, you know what? It's surprising I'm any kind of teacher. I hated school. Like, I was straight up... My first memory of school was kindergarten. I had to like get on the microphone. I don't know if, if this is like universal torture everywhere, but you had to like say when you were at your kindergarten graduation, what you wanted to be when you grew up, like you had some sort of like life plan already figured out. And uh, I remember I just stood there with the microphone, just terrified, couldn't speak. My mom, dad are yelling, say something. And I just start crying. And oh. like, that's my first real memory of school. And I'm like, I was super shy. I never took any advanced classes uh, in high school. I was just more interested in trying to find a girlfriend and maybe save up enough money for a car. No one in my family had gone to college. There was always that expectation that you would, you would go just because, you know, the next generation is supposed to do something kind of cool. And I purely went to the local community college so that I could keep my health insurance because uh, I could stay under my parents' plan. I think at the time you had to be a full-time student. So I was like, I need that health insurance because I'm, I'm always thinking I'm sick. So let me, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me make sure I got that plan. And I happened to stumble into, just by pure chance, some really incredible history professors. And they made me really fall in love with studying history and challenged me. I remember one of them, uh, Mr. Broslowski, he, he threw a book at me and said, you know, read this, you moron, and let's talk about it next week. Because he saw some promise in my smart-ass remarks I would make and 
ended up really kind of getting pumped about his class and other classes and then transferred to UCLA, applied to one college because working class family applications, I think, were like $55 a pop. And it was like, I'm just going to apply to this school because it's close enough to me to commute. And it, I think, has a good reputation. I didn't even know much about like the institution itself, like UCLA. It wasn't like, oh my God, I have to go be a Bruin. And went there, declared my major as a history major and realized that I just want to keep taking classes. I was in these lecture halls with like 300 students in some cases. And I would be the only one usually who was like, I'm trying to get in the teaching game. Everyone else was trying to go to law school or something. And I was just so in my element when learning history, talking history, and kind of awoken uh, an intellectual passion that I did not know was in me. And so I've been doing it ever since, since 2004. Nice. And you're still there, right? Can you discuss the environment in which you work? Like, what's your school like? So I switched schools about three years, which was a very difficult decision. I was like, I thought I'd start working and retire at the same spot. And, you know, we moved and LA is just crazy traffic, as most people are aware. And the new school I'm at is a magnet school, which a lot of people have these different ideas of what a magnet school is. But all it means is kids are provided buses. And it was a part of the late 60s, early 70s effort to desegregate schools to provide equity and access to different communities. So my school is a real unique place because it is students from the neighborhood, which tends to be more middle class suburban, and then kids from all different corners of the city and different walks of life. So I'll have a number of students that are first generation. They're the ones who go home and translate for their parents and help them navigate all the different systems. And then you have students whose parents are highly educated, which growing up was crazy because I didn't really know anybody who had parents that went to college. That was like a whole other world. So I feel like I, I, I can advocate for those students that are kind of feeling a little lost and overwhelmed in a system in which you have people that are coming to the table with certain assets or advantages and, and being a first generation college student, which I'd say about half or a little bit more than half of my students are. We try to kind of provide them the opportunity on our campus to excel. So you're kind of a, a hometown hero in a way. Like there's not a lot of LA kids that make it through UCLA and then they come back to be teachers. And I'd imagine that that's got to feel good on a great many levels. The school that you work at now is legit diverse. It is ethnically, racially, religiously diverse. It is socioeconomically diverse. Like it's actual diversity. Yeah. So my first 14, 15 years, I never once taught a student who was white. And we had one Russian kid and we'd always give him crap because he was like the one white kid on our school demographic data. And we're like, <laughs> you're a Russian. And he would he would play up. His mom was actually involved in, you know, some Cold War history stuff. So she was affiliated with the Communist Party. So it was like this joke. And I made the switch, gonna be year three at the new school, and and now it, it looks like Los Angeles. It looks like when you think of a diverse class, we have students speaking so many different languages, so many different religions. And that was a prerequisite of me finding a new place because the unfortunate reality is in many cities, Los Angeles is not unique here. We are very segregated in our schooling. You know, it's neighborhood schools tend to be predominantly Latino, predominantly African-American. 
because of the magnet school component of our school and its mission, we intentionally bus kids in from different neighborhoods to create a diverse environment. It pays a lot of dividends, especially a history class. I can teach the Vietnam War and pretty confidently have a student who has experience from Southeast Asia. They themselves may not be able to speak to the realities of the war, but their parents, their grandparents. And so I love that. I see that as a tremendous asset uh, to be able to kind of draw in. And, and, and beyond just kind of racial and religious, this is the first time I've ever had to deal with like political diverse views, right? It, it, getting people from all sorts of different income levels, you know, political conversations take these really dramatic turns because you, you have people with strong feelings about things like immigration. For many of my students, it's personal. And for a student who may be six, seven generations in the U.S., they may not have ever really thought about the immigration experience through the lens of a immigrant who happens to be their friend. And maybe those conversations aren't the ones they're having on TikTok, but they're they're having them in our class. So, like, yeah, yeah we're we're super diverse, and and I, I firmly believe that it is a tremendous teaching tool. That diversity. It inspires me to learn that you see diversity as an asset and not an obstacle. And I think that gives some insight into why you're such a successful and admired teacher. Look, I want to explore what you do and how you do it. Now that we have a sense of the setting in which you teach. So let's dive into your process. Let's start real small. About how many students do you have in an average class? In an average class, that just switched. Uh, a, a year ago, we had to go on strike because class sizes were, were extremely large. And prior to the strike, they would put 39 kids in, in my AP classes. If it was in the low 30s, it was like threatened to be closed. It was too small. So 39 was pretty much the standard. So uh, we went on strike about a year and a half ago, two years ago now, 2019. And uh, now we have a cap. I believe it's at 36. So pretty much our classes are always, they're, they're reaching capacity. There may be one where there's a little less, but above 30 is, is almost always the case. All right. Another sort of small question, again, just to establish a, a brief understanding for me so that I can dive into the right spots in exploring your process. In those classes, which are you know, despite the strike, kind of painfully large. Like about what percent of your lessons are lectures versus whole group versus small group discussions? I'm allergic to asking what an average day is because I know there's not an average day for you. So in lieu of that, can you give me a sense of proportionality? Yeah, definitely. So we're on block schedule. So I see my students every other day. I'll see them Tuesday, Thursday, Monday is the day where we see everyone for an hour. The other two days, it's two-hour block schedule. So, you know, it, it, it is extremely difficult to keep anybody's attention, let alone teenagers' attention for that amount of time. So I, I, I intentionally mix up what I'm doing. So I, I, I hate to use the word lecture because it's, it's, it's more like an experience, a discussion, a debate, an inquiry, but I'll, I'll kind of have my little slideshows with my music and my my clips of pop culture things where we can kind of like 
dig in and look at something they may have digested on their own. You know, maybe it's an episode, a clip of a cartoon or something and kind of look at it with a more critical lens. So it's not necessarily me just, you know, blah, blah, blah for, for 30 minutes. So we may do that for 20, 30 minutes. It may go longer, small group activity for, for another 30 40 minutes where students are engaged in some meaningful task. And I always tell my students, like, it ain't just the product, it's the process of your learning. When I want to make an administrator uncomfortable when they don't really know me, I'll just say, oh, don't forget to pee pee. And they're just like, <laughs> what, what is he talking about? Like product in process, product in process. And I, I, and it's done with the intention of like, when you're in a small group, it's not just we're moving our chairs together to keep warm. Or to like copy off the the genius kid in the class. We need each other. And back to that question about diversity, like we need the perspective of the different folks that are in our group. We need to co-construct our knowledge. So like time can't be wasted. We really need to uh, leverage the talents we have. So that may be a 30, 40 minute thing. And then usually we close out with some sort of whole class discussion, uh, share out type activity. So there's there's usually three to four different kind of tasks that we're doing. So kids can get up. Uh, kids can kind of interact with different people, small group, whole group. It's a ne- never-ending work in progress. So it's constantly trying to see what's working in each class. You know, we've all had classes where their way of learning may be very different, period one versus period two. So having a, an ability to adjust on the fly is, is I think, essential. So like back to what do I do? I, I oftentimes create lesson plans I have to scrap midway through and reinvent myself in real time in front of very judgmental looking teenagers that are very forgiving, (laughs) but also kind of have this face where you can't tell, are you enjoying this? So it's it's kind of adapting to what the students need. Can we talk about that for a second? Because, all right, given that underpreparing can lead to suboptimal results, and over-preparation can undermine serendipity. Maybe you could walk me through exactly how prepared you are for a given class. Like, to what degree is there a script? Yeah, there's no script, uh, which is another thing I've done throughout my career to get me on the bad side of admin. I, I don't write out these lesson plans with these, you know, nice learning targets. Uh, I just, my brain doesn't work that way. But if you were to do a deep dive into my computer's hard drive or Google drive, you will see there is an abundance of preparation. And I like to think organized chaos of planning going on. Like I have a whole host of things that I can kind of pull from. I, I will have more than enough primary sources, pictures, clips, Things that I can kind of use depending upon the time, the the student interest, and all sorts of other factors. So I tend to over-prepare. I spend so many hours. My my wife and children bear the brunt of that work where I'm just kind of like, daddy's working. And I I try to keep that home-life balance. But teachers know, right? Yeah, the bell rings at 3 o'clock. But many of us are planning way late. And that involves a lot of kind of whether it be going on social media where we're sharing ideas with strangers on Twitter or Facebook or starting off in Wikipedia and ending up like in some like CIA database, finding primary sources that were just released last <laughs> week. So you could talk about yep. the U S and Guatemala. Like it, 
it's crazy. And, and I think, cause I'm, I'm very anxious. I want to like be prepared. I want to, I want students to leave my class saying, damn, that was dope. And dang, I like Mr. Joseph's class. And if they could say that, then like, it just kind of pumps me, gets that fuel for the next day. So I tend to over-prepare and then kind of pivot on the fly if I need to. Can we just talk about one facet of that answer, which by the way, I should say I rather enjoyed. You talked a bit about this anxious, near desperate desire to promote joy in your classroom. You want them to really dig it. Can you talk about what you do in your work to maximize joy and minimize pain and frustration? Yeah, you know, I I definitely have not figured out the secret sauce to, to doing that because I can have six classes of 35 plus students and if there's one that kind of has a has a face that seems like they're just not digging it, I will drive home thinking about, all right, dang, how, how do I, how do I do this better? How do I, how do I get them involved? You know, what is their passion? How do they feel about learning? And, and so, you know, we've all seen, there's those teachers that take pride in being the strict, hard nose, nobody gets an A in my class. Kids are terrified every time there's an assignment because, and they kind of equate that with like they respect. I I, I I tend not to like those people. Yeah. On the flip side, there's also the the people that like every kid loves me, and I feel like are you trying to like live out some like lost dreams from your own high school where you're Mister <laughs> or Mrs. Popular? Like I don't like that either. So like drawing that line where you're rigorous, students respect you, they fear not doing their best, but it's not a fear that like eats away at them and causes panic. But at the same time, like they can kind of come in and joke with me, taking some jokes, talking about music, and then kind of quickly just effortlessly kind of get into some of the stuff that, you know, probably is not as fun, like writing a document-based question or going over some, some standardized tests that the kids have to take next week. So like, for me, it's just kind of showing my humanity. Like I'm very self-deprecating. I will joke with the students a lot. I will learn from them. You know, I, I use a lot of like music clips and things like that in my slideshows and not trying to be young, trying to be who I am, but also kind of acknowledging, appreciating, and really kind of putting them also at the center of what we do. You know, it's hard because, you know, they're, they're, they're teenagers and we're, we're all human trying to kind of create this shared space so I always just kind of remind myself, I don't want to be the hard-ass teacher that is so full of themselves because of their presumed accomplishments. And I also don't want to be a pushover who they don't really push themselves to work hard for. I think a key to that is just kind of setting the, the tone for, we're going to make a heck ton of mistakes. We're going to probably feel insecure at times with the thoughts we're having. And, and that's part of this kind of learning process. And, and I'm going to have it and you're going to have it. And that's cool. It takes constant care and, and nurturing. So my room's open at lunch. And every year I tell myself, All right, next year, I'm not doing that. I need my time. <laughs> I need my 35 minutes to eat my food, to shovel the food in my mouth, even though it's not all the way warm because there's one microwave for all the teachers. But like 
just knowing that my room's open just gives the students that opportunity to come in and get to know me and I get to know them on a whole different level, which then pays dividends when we, you know, we're in class. And there's that kind of mutual respect like, oh, yeah, you're going to work me hard. You're going to expect a lot out of me. But you're also going to like remember some corny joke I told you and then you're going to tell that joke to other people. And it's that kind of community, which I think takes time. There's no like lesson plan or icebreaker activity that you're going to be able to just do and and be. And so I oftentimes say, well, like I'm a truth teller. I kind of speak what's on my mind sometimes to my own detriment. And I do that and I'm willing to be vulnerable in front of the students and on behalf of the students. And so that may be going to an administrator and bringing up an issue that the students don't feel comfortable being able to bring up. So I, I think that's kind of a key part of what I do and how I do it. I get a strong sense that you're a real advocate for your students, and I respect the degree to which and the ways in which you're willing to be vulnerable for and with them. And I'm sure that the environment is really joyous on a good day. It's clear from your answer that one of the ways in which you create connections with your students is through really being open to them, being available to them. And it makes sense to me in just talking to you for a little while now, how and why students would connect to you really quickly. You know, you're personable, you're, you're clever, you're fun. But we both know that the best classes are the ones where the students experience a palpable sense of connection to each other. Not just the student-teacher relationship, but the student-student relationship. And I guess I wonder how in your work you're able to establish and foster a sense of camaraderie, a sense of community among and between the students. You know, at a school where students are coming from different neighborhoods, they, they may not see each other ever on the weekends because they're just in different worlds, different bubbles of Los Angeles. Uh, that's that's a challenge and, and an important challenge that we take on. You know, high school has changed a tremendous amount since the days that I I was there, but it hasn't changed in some regards. And that is, you know, students find their their crew, their clique, the people that they are comfortable with, and that's who they want to work with all the time in their groups. And if they're not with those people, they they kind of get into shutdown mode. I deliberately chip away at that. And that's one of the things that early on we kind of bump heads is this kind of acknowledgement that we are not just going to kind of sit in our bubbles or sit in our comfort zones and form groups with people that we already know. Yeah, so I'm very intentional with my, my grouping of students from day one. It is important to me to get them out of their comfort zone or the, the people that they kind of are, are familiar with and to, to push them to kind of, especially in history and, and government econ, to, to allow them to experience the world they're in, but also the world that we're studying from the past through different lenses, you know, whether it be ethnic, gender, whatever. And so I'm consciously kind of like putting them in places where they're going to have to kind of meet new people, hear new ideas, and be able to work on their their confidence to be able to like 
challenge someone when they're making a claim that can't be based on any facts. And really early on, explain my intention behind it. You know, I remember oftentimes in school, teachers would just kind of do things. And, you know, to be fair, it's, I guess, their classroom and I would just accept it. But I would be annoyed, like, why are we doing this? And there was never really that explanation as to what was the the end goal, the purpose, the objective. And so while I'm not very good at like writing down my learning targets on the whiteboard every day, I like to think that I'm, I'm very purposeful. And when I'm explaining things to students, we're doing this and here's why, and it's going to lead to this. And, and kind of going back to the thing that I kind of jokingly say when an admin walks in, oh, the, don't forget the two PPs. Like I, I'm constantly referring to that process of co-constructing knowledge. Like, so you're in this group, you're with people that you may or may not know, but here's the reality. They're the homies and the homegirls right now. And you need them because I'm grading you uh, on not only what you create, your product, but your your process in doing it. And giving them an opportunity to also fail in that regard. You know, l- let's have a conversation. What's not working well? It's exhausting, though, because I'm constantly up, walking around the room, constantly checking in and getting my steps in so I can, you know, maintain this beautiful figure. But, <laughs> like, it, it, it's necessary. Because if you just throw them into these little, like, corners of the room and say, work magic, students, they're going to revert to old behavior, which is, shutting down unless it's their their friends or and and explaining it to students. Here's why we're doing this. You know, you're going to probably unfortunately enter a world where we are very tribal. We're all in our little bubbles, whether you be liberal, conservative, whatever happens to to be kind of part of your identity, and we tend to kind of just speak in our little echo chambers where we just reinforce each other's opinions as long as they kind of sharing the same worldview. And so I tell them our class is like a laboratory of studying the past, but also trying to understand the present. And we need those perspectives. If when you leave here, you choose to retreat behind these little kind of isolated tribes that we've kind of find ourselves in, that's going to be unfortunate. I can't stop that. But I want you to see the value of working collaboratively and finding meaning in it. We're not just doing busy work here. We're doing it for some, some bigger purpose. I think in that process, students will they'll start to learn things. There's usually some sort of like, you know, icebreaker activity that they do every time they start a, a new assignment with a group to just kind of break down those, those walls that students have up. And even us adults, like I always, always marvel at all these kind of things that we know are sound pedagogy when they're, when they're done to us, we kind of behave very similar to students. Like, man, I don't know you. You're not in my department. You teach science. I'm going to not really talk to you at this PD. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, yeah. I, I need to catch myself because it is very easy to kind of behave like a teenager. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think they're behaving like all of us do when we're in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, and we try our best to kind of break down that discomfort and open them up to new experiences and new opportunities. So Daniel, in your Herculean efforts to create camaraderie and community, it seems to me that part of what you seek to do is to help young people to discover themselves, to help them figure out who they are, what they stand for, what they're willing to fight and die for. Your work is very much wrapped up in encouraging self-discovery in as much detail as you can. Can you explain how you do that? Yeah, you know, that, that's a 
great way of putting it. I think that, that, that perfectly summarizes it, trying to get students to discover themselves. And I think part of it comes from the fact that I had no freaking clue who I was. And I graduated high school and my main goal was keeping the health insurance. So to give you an idea of how I try to do that, in my experience, most of my classes were I, what I did in week one was very similar to what I was going to be doing week 10 and week 20. And, you know, whether that be sitting there taking notes from a lecture from an overhead projector, and your younger listeners will have to Google that, <laughs> or doing worksheets or whatever it was, many of my teachers were, that's kind of what their, their skill set was, and that's what they did. And so in my classes, I'm always mixing it up with intention, though. So for instance, I never really like labels, but like I do a lot of projects in my class. I'm not a primarily project-based class, but for instance, when they learn about the New Deal uh, and the Great Depression, they have to create a marketing plan for a New Deal program. And the, the purpose of that is chances are none of them are ever going to really need to know the various alphabet agencies when they leave high school. It's just probably not going to be a part of their daily life. But there is a good chance they're going to need to sell something. Maybe, you know, it sounds horrible, but themselves at a job interview or, or to a potential significant other, or maybe they'll even enter their career in marketing. Uh, and so there's this whole project we end up doing that involves them kind of creating a sales pitch for a New Deal program, creating a poster using Photoshop to kind of like hypothetically put this poster on display throughout a community to, to sell the idea to the people. And then they have to create a song parody that requires them to kind of repurpose a song that is popular, but then to create it about a New Deal program. So I've had students use Kanye West to talk about the Agricultural Adjustment Act, Taylor Swift to talk about uh, the Wagner Act, a bunch of other examples. And so through those different kind of projects, they're having to do things like Photoshop, writing song lyrics, recording, creating a sales pitch, creating an argument in the sales pitch. And my hope and my experience has been that students in doing these types of activities that they may not have done in some classes, and maybe they have, that they're kind of awakening passions that they might not have known they had. I've had plenty of students who never really learned how to do much with Photoshop, and I kind of gave them a crash course tutorial and end up creating these really cool posters that kind of blend these historic images with more popular symbols. And they, they present them in front of the class. And I'm like, you just basically are creating like a marketing campaign, creating a visual icon for this New Deal program. You're, you're taking complex ideas and turning them into a visual piece of art. That, that's a skill that someone gets paid lots of money to do in many cases. Other students who create songs, and I can discover that they play the guitar and they actually play their own guitar when they record their song and it's a way for me to get to know them. So through these little projects, I teach these 21st century skills through the past and they kind of see what gets them excited. And some of the projects, they downright, hey, oh my God, this is so hard. I've never done this before. And they're like probably rolling their eyes, cursing under their breath about me. But in the end, I think they overwhelmingly realize that I'm not doing it to like hold an A over their, their head or it's just, I want you to give it a go. See what you're able to create either alone or with these complete strangers or with your best friend. And in that process, you're going to find 
some stuff about yourself or you're going to share some stuff you already knew with people who may not know it, like play guitar or you can sing beautifully. I, I think that self-discovery comes from the types of opportunities I'm, I'm putting before students. It's hard though. When I go to a meeting or a, to professional development, oftentimes I just want to sit in the back and be left alone. That's what a lot of the students want too. But once they start kind of realizing that, you know, hey, this has value. This is actually fun sometimes. And if it's not fun, Mr. Joseph is going to be there to support my progression, whether it be, you know, he's, he's going to explain it in a video that I could watch later on, or I can come in at lunch or even after school. Like they know that I'm, I'm a roll with them. And I oftentimes will do what I'm asking them to do. So whether it be a song and I'm awful at singing, create a speech, you know, I, I have horrible memory. I will oftentimes do it to start out as kind of like, all right, here's mine. Y'all way more talented than me. Let's see what you got. And so, yeah, the students are definitely, in many cases, kind of discovering what ways they learn best and, and where they're weak. And I think oftentimes when they realize that they're weak at something, especially some of those students that are like these uber geniuses that have like a four point, you know, eight, when they struggle, I think it also kind of teaches them like, you know, that's okay. I don't need to have a full blown panic attack because I struggle. I, I can lean on other folks and get that help or lean on the teacher. And I think that that has value too. So that's kind of how I do it, or at least try to do it. Daniel, I'm legit inspired by that response. Thank you for it. It's just so heartening to hear precisely how and why a colleague of mine on the other side of the world is as committed as you are to helping young people to discover themselves. And despite that inspiration, I want to take the conversation down a notch. I want to take it to perhaps the least inspiring place. Perhaps. I'm not sure. I imagine that grading isn't your favorite part of the job. It's surely not my favorite part of the job. You need to be an effective and an efficient and an empathic grader. It's hard to do one of those things. It's wicked hard to do all three. Bearing that in mind, can you talk a bit about your feelings about grading and your approach to getting the job done? Yeah, grading is awful. I, I <laughs> you know, one, one of the reasons why I hate it is I oftentimes find that so many students fall into one of these two categories. There's those students who do assignments just enough so they can get a D <laughs> or they could pass and they can kind of pass the class and get the heck out of high school. And they just, the, the effort, you know, they're, they're capable of so much more, but yet it's just kind of, and I get it. They're busy. They got a lot of things going on, you know, least priority thing on their list. And then you have those students who are so obsessed with getting an A so that they could be the top of the class. And I, I, I don't know, get into their dream college and everything will work out in their life. That anything less than an A drives them into some deep despair that is so unhealthy. And, and then you have those students that I actually, the middle is where I really enjoy grading. Those, those students where, you know, when I'm grading something, I can offer that feedback, those suggestions that allow them to kind of grow. And they put in the effort to, to really show me their level of understanding at that point. And 
with those suggestions, with that kind of feedback, I'm able to kind of see that kind of growth the next time I encounter their essay, their project, whatever it happens to be. I, I think there's that that challenge that I that I really do struggle with um, in terms of how do I I grade in a way that provides meaningful feedback. But when you're dealing with classes of over 35, not to mention a very writing intensive class, like an AP US history class, it is pure survival. And so more often than not, and this is my frustration with the college board and, and the district, and you know, our students are not competing on a fair playing field. When you have a class of over 35, and you're grading these document-based questions where this rubric is unexplainable. I've been in so many uh, <laughs> professional developments where the instructor, the licensed person, the certified person can't explain how you get this point. And there's widespread disagreement in a room full of educators over this rubric. Like, how do I then translate that to students and then grade it authentically, give them feedback, and then give them another one like with that? volume of students in a class. So more often than not, it's, it's, it's a number on the, on, on their paper, on their Google doc. And it's a, it's a peer edit. It's a, here's some decent samples I could show you, but yeah, the grading part is, is something that I, I continue to struggle with. You know, maybe someone will be listening to this and will reach out to me and provide me some, uh, uh, some training on some, how do I do, do a, a, a better job at the grading piece. Yeah, well, it's not going to come from me. I struggle with it too. And my student load is a fraction of yours. Per perhaps it's useful to nail down some brass tacks here. How many hours a week, on average, do you spend grading student work? Oh, how many hours a week? It's, 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 it's hard to pinned down because, you know, I spoke earlier about kind of when students are in small groups, I'm, I'm rotating around and kind of eavesdropping and interjecting where appropriate. So oftentimes I have a stack of stuff that I'm grading as I'm walking and I'm multitasking. I'm, I'm at lunch while I'm, you know, chatting it up with whoever's in my room at that particular moment. I'm, I'm, I'm grading while eating and having a conversation about the office with a, a student. You know, it's it's too many hours to really kind of pinpoint. It, it I just know that it's exhausting. I've, I've cut out the grading on Saturdays and Sundays since I've had my beautiful two little daughters because I need that family time. So it, it's often, though, that I'll stay late at work and grade for a few hours. When I do have a conference period, I'll, I'll, I'll grade papers. So... You know, it, it does consume a huge chunk of my week. I, I don't know that I could kind of concretely nail it down. Six, seven hours probably is the norm. Yeah. It, it, it's a lot. I understand. In your discussion about grading, you alluded to a concern that you and I share, and this is the concern over equity. I wonder how the processes that you've been discussing hitherto in our conversation underscore your commitment to equity. What do you do exactly to make sure, to the best of your ability, that all the kids in your class have an equal opportunity to thrive? I feel like a lot of people talk about equity 
without really understanding or putting into practice what, what it means and what is necessary to achieve it. So I'll give you an example. Uh, so I started teaching in 2004. Right away, I got assigned the AP U.S. history class because no one else wanted to do it. The pass rate was 26%. Our district average was a 33% average pass rate. And for the listeners out there who are like, what the heck, uh, that's horrible. Well, the national or international average is around 50%. It could be 52, it could be 48, it's, it's around that. So we were below the national average. And every year I taught that class, and I've been teaching it ever since, the, the scores have gone up. And within about three, four years, we got to a point we were passing 90% of our students in an open enrollment, 90% Title I school. So Title I, high poverty school, open enrollment, meaning every student who wants the class can take it. Every student who took the class was expected to take the test. So there wasn't any kind of, hey, Johnny, I don't think you're quite ready there. I don't want you to mess up my data. It was a pure, everybody who wants it, we recruit it, we support it. And we did a lot of things to grow the program because of our commitment to equity, which was if the students are taking these rigorous classes, they'll be more likely to be able to get into some of these more selective colleges. And so since, uh, you know, three, four years, uh, I started teaching, the pass rate was, was phenomenal. The district pass rate remained 33%. So that's kind of one of the things that really kind of got people's attention. Uh, and then the, the college board changed the exam and it became much more about reading, writing, as well as content. And I had to kind of re-examine how I did things. And that's kind of where I started creating like the YouTube videos, uh, where I was explaining to students, here's what this book is saying. Here's what this college board standard means. And so to answer your question, like, what do you do to kind of work towards equity? For me, it's doing whatever I can to support the students that I happen to be entrusted to teach. And so when it comes to the AP program, uh, I was still at my previous school. They changed the exam in 2015. I spent way too many hours preparing these note guides. This was all outside of class time, outside of the normal lesson planning, grading. My students were having trouble understanding this college-level textbook, and they need this access to this knowledge so that they can then practice the skills that they're going to need to demonstrate to the college board. And so I started just kind of creating these, uh, these videos and they weren't fancy. I wasn't trying to become YouTube famous or none of those things. It was purely, it's the only way my students were going to have a shot at this redesign course. And with that, coupled with things like keeping my room open, tutoring, finding connections to the content that students can understand, whether it be through pop culture or through interactive lectures. We kind of, we had an initial drop in 2015 when the redesign took place, where it dropped to 67% pass rate. And then I kind of started doing all the things I just mentioned, and we got back up and we've been there ever since above 90%. Once again, open enrollment, Title I, class sizes of above 35 and the pass rate is substantially better than any place in LAUSD. And oftentimes I go to these trainings and hear these instructors talk about their pass rates, but they're at these, you know, very affluent schools or there's an admissions process for their AP class. And at our school, it's, it's wide open. And so equity, I think, 
really is doing what your students need in order to level the playing field, to get them up to speed. I was just watching this uh, teacher on Twitter kind of ranting and shaming other teachers who give summer homework. And, you know, I'm all about summer break, too. It's a break. I get it. I appreciate that a thousand percent. But the reality is for for students in, in the community I work in, many of them are not born in the United States, so they have no frame of reference. I've had students with a fifth grade reading level uh, in my AP class. The norm is below grade level reading level uh, in an AP class. If I don't give them some sort of summer enrichment, summer task, we will never be able to achieve what they need to do in order for them to pass the exam and to be competitive. You know, equity, I think, gets tossed around because it makes people a lot of money selling programs and study guides and keynote speeches. But I, f- I find more often than not, the people talking about equity are not in the classroom actually putting in the work that actually is what equity is about. Look, man, I agree. I think a lot of the discussion about equity, despite it being well-intended, I think in most cases, is often misguided, perhaps for the very reason that you suggest that it's misguided. You know, the people who are talking about equity, they don't have the boots on the ground, right? You're in the classroom and your commitment to equity is what you do on a daily basis to make sure that all of your students have the resources, the sense of support that they deserve to, to, to be their best. And in talking about that, you know, you took a little jab at the, you know, celebrities, you know, the people using YouTube to develop some sort of sense of fame. But, you know, it should be noted that you yourself have developed a really successful set of discussions on YouTube. And you do it for a very pure reason, right? Like you got into this, as you said, to help your students who needed the support and they needed the scaffolding to succeed on the tasks that they faced. And uh, last I checked, your uh, YouTube channel has like just a sneeze shy of 20 million viewers. You're not only have you become a real resource to your own students, you've become an invaluable resource to a lot of teachers and students around the world. And, and I commend that. I think it's really demonstrative of your seemingly tireless commitment to climb in this hill with and for your students. And I think it's in part because of that and because of your commitment to, to equity and helping students find a voice that a couple of years ago, you earned the title of the California Teacher of the Year. And it's a big deal, right? The state of California is more populous than something like 80% of the countries on the planet. You got to spend an evening with President Obama and then Vice President Joe Biden I've seen the photos, man. You look real happy. And I know you've spoken about it. And I wouldn't want to make you swim in your past glory for too long. But Daniel, I got to know, what did it feel like to win the award of California Teacher of the Year, to be in the top four teachers of the country? And what did it feel like to win that award and hang out in the White House? 
Yeah, it was surreal. And I have uh, still trouble processing. Don't have a problem appreciating, but just processing. Dang, I got invited to the vice president's mansion. And I'm going to admit, as a U.S. history teacher, I should have known this. I didn't even know there was a vice president's mansion. I knew <laughs> that they had to live somewhere, but I had no knowledge of of where it was or or anything. And so to have the honor of having cocktails with Joe and Dr. Jill Biden and to, to be in their house just roaming around and using the restroom and snatching the hand towels because they have the vice president's seal on them uh, and you want to like – prove that you were actually there and then it happened to be uh president obama's last year in office so they went all out for the ceremony at the white house and and we we had the marine corps band playing and and food just spread all around the east room and shaking hands with the president i was like he must moisturize like nobody's business because he has the smoothest (laughs) hands they're strong but silky smooth and i was just like dang mr president you have some nice smooth hands and i'm like what am i saying to the president of the united states um and so you know it 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 was an honor from the get-go when i was named one of lausd's teachers of the year and then it kind of the county and then the state you know, it, it's weird, right? Like when I when I tell people it, you know, in like basketball or in any sport, right? The MVP, you can look at the stats. You could say, look, you got this many points per night on average. You did this number of things to get your team this number of wins. Like you can quantify it usually. But in teaching, there's certain things that are objective. If you look at some test scores or things like that. But so much of what we do is subjective. I could be someone's favorite teacher and the student right next to them, they could hate my guts and dread coming to my class. And believe me, there's probably a few of them out there and it makes me sad and that makes me want to keep trying to get better. But I, I just took it with a great degree of humbleness. My wife is a kindergarten teacher. In many ways, she's a more phenomenal educator than I could ever even dream to be. And so I don't even feel like the best teacher in my own house. And yet here I was experiencing these wonderful opportunities to be amongst some of the best in, in our profession. Uh, and yeah, it, 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 was, it was surreal, especially since, and I haven't really talked about this too much, but you know, I was actually, as a, as a history teacher, I flew out to Obama's inauguration in 2009 and missed the entire inauguration because Uh, A lot of people don't know it was so heavily attended because it was like a historic moment. There was a lot of enthusiasm. We had the purple inauguration tickets. It was too crowded. And uh, the the Capitol Police put us in this tunnel and we didn't get into the, the inauguration in time to actually witness the ceremony. And so for it to happen in the last year of Obama's presidency, it felt like the universe was was making that right because I was like, man, I missed that. I was paid a bunch of money to fly there, slept on somebody's uh, floor that I knew and missed the whole dang thing and had to fly back, tell my students I missed the whole thing. I, I was in a tunnel. So <laughs> it, it, it was it was quite the honor. Yeah. And it seems like you took that honor with a substantial dose of humility. And, uh, you know, I know I'm a bit late here, man, but congratulations. I'm real happy for you. And I know you earned it and I'm sure you enjoyed it. And not to take any wind out of the sails of that, but like, look, you're a stellar teacher. 
No doubt about it. But I'm curious, just for a moment of earnest self-reflection here, like, how would you change any of your processes? Like, what are your deficits that you're going to be chipping away at for the next couple of years? Hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm so driven by the curriculum that I lose a lot of opportunities to really make even more meaningful connections to what's going on in the world today, what's going on in my students' lives. I oftentimes feel like I'm, I'm rushed and, and there's so many students in my classes and there's so much history to cover. So for instance, you know, the, the capital riots that took place in January, I've been teaching online through Zoom since March of 2020. So we were in our Zoom sessions and in, in all my classes, we were way behind in the curriculum because we had half the instructional time that we normally do because of the new procedure for distant learning. And, and I was like legit struggling with how to incorporate in a meaningful way what just happened with the realities of our pacing for AP or our pacing for world history that I I was having this kind of like crisis. Like, what do I do? And like, do I open it up for questions and I cut them off after 10 minutes? And, and I completely just decided, you know, I'm going to abandon it and I'm going to go into a real deep dive as to what happened, the historic significance of it, the way media talks about it, just all the different angles that that moment afforded us as teachers, as history teachers, as government teachers. And we spent a couple days on it. And without a doubt, my, my AP students fell behind. And I don't think any of them were too disappointed by that. But I felt this sense of responsibility because so many of my students are first generation, first generation in this country, first generation college students in many cases. Like I feel like I have to get them as prepared as possible. And so I sometimes let curriculum decisions override what I know is good educational decisions. And that is spending times on, you know, the racial realities of America in 2021. And so I think the one thing that I really need to do, especially now that I'm on the, the back end of my career, I've been teaching what 17, 18 years, I still got another 15 probably, um, is finding more comfort and willingness to just kind of say, you know what, the curriculum, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We're, we're going to continue to, 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 to cover what I'm entrusted to teach, but also allowing for those, those opportunities to organically or inorganically kind of spring up and, and be comfortable with that. Just kind of providing more space for students to direct our learning process. That's not to say, you know, every day is like, hey, how are you guys feeling? What do you want to talk about? But by no means that, but we live in such an ever changing world and, and it's so confusing and there's so much misinformation that I feel like I need to be more deliberate in how I, I, I treat those, those moments and how I cover them. I, I, I feel like I almost don't want to teach history anymore. Sometimes I would just like to teach like a class called the present and just help students unpack some of the things, help myself unpack some of these things and. I think that's one of my, my areas of weakness that I, I do want to address. 
and also the grading piece. Like, how do I authentically provide feedback to students, given the fact that, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and I have my own family and a couple friends even and <laughs> some things I like to do. And I don't want to be strictly defined by the work I do. And, you know, a big part of my identity is teacher, but I feel at times it kind of consumes all of the different identities I have and striking that balance. You know, one of the things that that is sad and fascinating to me is, you know, in 2016, I was one of the teachers of the year. As you mentioned, I was one of the final four. I'm one of the few people for National Teacher of the Year. Uh, I'm one of the few people that is actually still teaching. You know, people have different reasons and different career goals, but most of the, the teachers, and this is true of all the different years that I've looked into, they're not in the classroom anymore. They're doing other things. Some folks have left education entirely. Others are administrators or curriculum writers. And if we believe that these are among the best of the best, the place they should be is in the classroom. And like, if you were to take the best sports figures out of their sport, you'd be like, wait, that makes no sense. This should be on the court where they're the most effective. And yet there's not a lot of incentives for great teachers to stay in the classroom other than their own internal drive. They can make more money going into other types of work. And so for me, you know, ever since the community college days of trying to keep the health insurance or at UCLA feeling very out of place because I was one of the few people trying to be a teacher and people would look at me like, you're goofy, like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> Is how do I maintain my, my passion for teaching, not get bitter, jaded, more than I already am, <laughs> so that I can still think about a question like you just asked and say, yeah, these are my areas of weakness and, and here's how I'm going to address it. Because I'm, I'm kind of scared sometimes thinking about what happens when I don't ask those questions of myself or what happens when I go, yeah, I'm weak in that. Oh, well, yeah, I have a lot to continue to kind of work on and work towards. And I think all teachers feel that strain. Even when you think you're at the top of your game, you're not. And then sometimes when you're at the top of your game, the only place left to go is down. <laughs> and so how do you keep yourself at a high level? It feels enormously stressful, a lot of pressure. So just trying to take it day by day and do the best job I can with the students I'm with. All right. All right. I'm loving this. Daniel, I can't tell you how much joy you're bringing me. This is, and I, just real quick, so I don't forget to say it later. I would have the precise same two answers. It's that, that, that curriculum issue. I've had so many similar experiences where I feel like, am I that mofo who sold his soul to the college board? Have I become that person? And the days where I do like step aside Martin Van Buren for just a hot minute to talk about the fact that like the climate's collapsing and democracy's in peril. I'm like, there's that. So much of what you're saying is hitting really important notes with me. So sorry, I just wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying this. Yeah, I remember in January, we we're like, oh, we got to cover the Grange movement <laughs> and the <laughs> populist movement, which I mean, are interesting, but yeah, yeah. like in the middle of like capital riots. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, how am I supposed to like, touch on this and then just kind of go back to our normally scheduled programming? Yeah, I know. man. I and know, it just that's why I'm trying to get rid of AP from my, my, my list of classes I teach. I identify wholeheartedly. It sounds like you and I, if we're going to stay in this game, we need to work on some similar things. On my best days at work, 
I feel like not only are my students learning and growing and hopefully finding some joy in the process, but I'm doing the same. To me, that's a satisfying workday. Tell me, what's a satisfying workday feel like for you? Like, what does it feel like when it's all humming along? It's so rare that it all hums along. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's been so long since I felt that. No, I, I, I think there's an adrenaline that kicks in. I always tell my students, like, if I had talent, I would love to be a performer on stage where I could feed off the energy of a of a crowd, you know, as a theater person or a musician, just that energy where everyone's just kind of vibing. And and I I find that as an educator, I feel like a performer because, you know, there could be days where you didn't get enough sleep or your kids were up late and they're sick and you, you're nursing a cold and you got to go in there in spite of what you're kind of dealing with internally. Just when you're on, you're on. And just when you feel like there is just an energy in the room, and this could be a student that normally doesn't really participate raising their hand or all the groups as you're roaming around, you look across the the classroom and everyone's talking and they have even smiles on their face and they're on topic or you go to run to the restroom at nutrition uh, because you want to get there before all the other colleagues get there and kids are saying hi to you as you run through the, the hallways. Like that is kind of what gets me pumped. It's those little victories. Like it's never like I'm grading some DBQs or a multiple choice test and there's a bunch of A's and suddenly my heart goes filled. I mean, that's cool and all, but it's those human moments of the quiet kid jumping into the conversation, all the groups working, students outside of your class wanting to chit chat with you. Like those are the parts of the day that really kind of say, wow, I'm having an impact. Students are enjoying learning. We're not just, you know, kicking it you know, entertaining whatever random thought that comes into my head. There's, there's instruction taking place and it's, and it's happening. And it's, it's a collective experience that we're all a part of. When all those things align, it's a good day in the words of Ice Cube. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're the first person to reference Ice Cube on this podcast and I hope not the last. (laughs) Hey, let me get the other side of it. If that's a satisfying work day, What's the biggest grind of your job and how do you grapple with that grind? Um, You know, when I first kind of entered the profession, I never really thought about like the little things that are annoying and just kind of eat at you. Like when I'm with the students, even the most difficult classes, I'm I'm good. I, I, I expect it and I can kind of work with it. But like the little things that you deal with as a teacher, like there's one microwave and it's a 10 minute walk across campus because you can't have a microwave in your class, but you only got 30 minutes to eat and you got to try to heat up your food and get back to your class. Like that sucks. Or I got to go to the bathroom, but I'm not allowed to leave the class and no one answers the phone in the main office. Little things like that, or the PD that someone put together and they didn't really put much effort and kind of is wasting time that I could better be used to grade all these essays that are sitting in the back of my 15 year old car, like that kind of stuff is, is what really grinds away at my teacher, uh, happiness level. Yeah. So-called professional development has chewed away on many a great instructor's soul. I'm with you. 
I'm with you. I'm going to send you a microwave in the mail too. It sounds like that's a bona fide problem. <laughs> I had an illegal one inside a cabinet and they found it and confiscated it. I was like, <laughs> it was like bootleg prohibition. I literally had it where you had to unlock it, open it. The microwave was in there. I drilled a hole so it was plugged in and they found the damn thing and gave me a stern talking to. And I was like, I'm tutoring kids for free at lunch. So I leave my room open. What's the big deal? Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. That's humiliating. Sorry, man. Hey, speaking of humiliating, <laughs> this last year and a half of teaching in the throes of pandemic has been a little bit or a lot humiliating for everybody involved. I know you're doing your best. I want to know what you've learned. What has teaching in the throes of a pandemic taught you about your role as an educator? Uh, teaching during a pandemic has taught me that I am a trash online teacher uh, <laughs> during a pandemic. It, it's been rough. There's been days where all the participation was near zero and I, I just was at wit's end with what to do, how to do it well. And I was trying everything and anything and even the best lessons just didn't meet my level. It didn't translate into what that experience was like in the classroom. And that's what I was chasing, that that perfect day where kids are engaged and talking. It just didn't happen. Part of it is the platform of being online. Part of it is there's bigger things to worry about, like job losses, family members being sick. And I, I realized I was still, I was so desperately chasing the the normalcy and the the joy that a classroom can bring. And I took it very personal when that wasn't happening in my classes. You know, it, it taught me that oftentimes there's things going on way bigger than our ability to teach through. And I just had to accept that it is what it is. No one not live has taught during a pandemic before and we're doing the best we can. I took heart and joy in knowing that when I would informally survey my students, they, they regularly said that oftentimes my class was one of the few that that they enjoyed or they didn't uh, find to be a waste of time or just a bunch of busy work. I was happy because I didn't get that sense during our classes, but they had no reason to kind of lie. It was all anonymous. And so just, it, it reminded me the importance of checking in with students in a very informal, anonymous way, because you, can, you can't always tell how effective you are based upon the level of verbal engagement. Yeah, I felt like like complete garbage as an educator. I I did not find joy in that realm of of distance learning. Yeah, I struggled with it quite a bit myself. And you might have been the 2016 teacher of the year, but it's going to be hard to feel like the 2021 teacher of the year. And I think it's going to be really hard for anyone to feel like they're doing their best work. And listen, man, I hope you find a way to create some space and to pursue some solace. I think it takes a lot of recovery work to create some space around our feelings, you know, especially for an instructor like you who really, truly brings his whole self to the process. You know, you're vulnerable for and with your students. It's evident to me. And then to be put in this particular situation where that vulnerability and that exposure 
and that wholehearted engagement meets a test because that sacred space, the classroom, got taken away from you. Zoom is no way to engage, even when you get creative, as I'm sure you did. So I, I wish you some some peace and some recovery around this whole thing. I get the sense that you had experiences that were similar to mine, and you did your best, and you brought it, and you did better than others. But it's this really sort of like unrequited thing, you know? You don't get to be there, you know, sharing in this enthusiastic environment. And uh, yeah, on my best days, I'm really aware of what it makes me feel like to teach in the throes of a pandemic. But if I'm to be honest with myself and honest with you, a lot of times I don't demonstrate the awareness that I wish I had. Not that awareness itself is going to be the panacea, but it's a step. It's a big step. And so, yeah, man, I, I wish you well. I wish, I wish you health and wellness, and I hope that you can find a way to, for as long as this thing goes on, find some joy and create some joy in this seemingly impossible situation. Look, it's hard to feel like you're really winning when you're doing pandemic teaching. But you've had a robust and, so far as I could tell, beautiful career. There have been ups, there have been downs. I want to hear both. Can you help me drive this train into the station by giving me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And let's start with the failure so we could end on the note of triumph. I fail every day as a teacher. I, I think you have to find comfort and, and opportunity to learn in, in those failures. There's always things that you replay on your ride home from work, you know, an interaction with a student that you wish went a little bit different or with a colleague or in a lesson. Yeah, I mean, every day I have these, these failures that I will, my wife says, dwell on. And, and I, I really look to them for opportunities to, to, to improve. But I, I think the one that really stands out, probably because it's, it's quite fresh, is just the failure of, of, trying to teach during a pandemic, not to come back to that same thing, but just having these, these fantastic ideas and lessons and resources and putting them together and then having maybe one or two students on the Zoom talk on a topic that normally would engage everybody. So, you know, we were covering prohibition in my regular U.S. history class and we normally do like a four corners activity where it's strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, and students move about the room and go to four corners. And there's a series of questions. And, and part of the, the lesson is to not just get them to think about, you know, the decision to ban alcohol in the 1920s, but also like this idea of drugs today. Should marijuana be legal? Uh, should all drugs be legal? Should the government ban or restrict food that is considered unhealthy and to get them to think about personal choice versus responsibility of the public health, the role of government, all these kind of big ideas beyond just the 1920s and prohibition. And normally it's one of these things that everyone's talking, everyone's engaged, 
and there was one or two kids involved. And then I did the breakout rooms and it was just dead silent. And I was so frustrated and disappointed, sad that I spent all night kind of prepping this kind of pair deck to make this thing more interactive. I brought everyone back to the the, the main Zoom room and I was like, if y'all don't want to learn, fine, then I'm out of here. Here's your book work. Have a good day. And I let that frustration kind of come out. And I right away just saw that people weren't talking and I just kind of lost my cool. And I felt really bad because I just canceled class. And uh, the next day I had to kind of own that. And there's been times in my class where I've been frustrated, kind of shut down conversation. And I always have this deep sense of regret because students are hard to read sometimes. And, you know, just because they're not talking doesn't mean they're not engaged. And sometimes they're not talking for reasons beyond you and the class and especially during a damn pandemic. And so I apologize to them and asked them to give me feedback about how they feel pandemic learning should be handled. And we really took the time to debrief as a class and do a mental check-in, like how we're feeling, how I'm feeling, the level of work, what that level of work is doing to us as student, as teacher. And so it was a moment for us to, to kind of appreciate that fact that we are all in this together, but also for me to remind myself, I can't let my momentary frustrations be taken out on a group of young people that are trusting me to make this history stuff interesting and to to give them a, a little bit of a, a break in their day from the normal, like, you know, here's some busy work to do. I'll see you next time. And so I think my moments where I fail is where I let my my passion and my commitment for the job overreact to when it's not going as well as I, I, I would like it. But I think at that moment, a lot of them uh, saw how much I cared, uh, appreciated their own role in what this class was going to be. And from that point forward, it wasn't a perfect happily ever after moment, but there were more students who uh, were willing to take more risk. And also for me, being more patient with what they're dealing with and what they're struggling with. So that would definitely be the, the failure that is most front and center. I hear you. And I hope that you can be gracious with yourself. These are trying times, to say the very least. Uh, but I am heartened to learn that you owned it. You got vulnerable with your students. You all talked it through. Seems like it, in the end, it created a space for engagement and everything got a little bit better. So bearing that failure of sorts in mind, why don't you take us home with the professional triumph? So years ago, there was a student who was in one of my AP classes. And on paper, they had no business being there in terms of their skill levels at that point. They were reading way below grade level. They struggled in their regular history class the year before. They were there because their counselor kind of told them that you need some AP classes on your uh, transcripts if you want to go to a four-year university. And this student struggled, failed every single multiple choice test I gave them, which was demoralizing for both her and myself. Writing, most of the time, it was less than a paragraph for a full essay, just didn't finish, just froze up. and ended up actually trying to copy all their work on the first semester 
because they were just overwhelmed and didn't know what to do. And I found out and there were tears and, you know, she wanted to, to drop the class. And, you know, I, I don't tell students what to do on, in that area. That's not my, that's not my role. I believe we will, we will do well, uh, as well as we possibly can. And they have to make a decision with their, their family, their loved ones and whatnot. And she ended up staying just because she said I was funny. And I thought that was a horrible reason to stay in a class. Uh, but she ended up staying and she was there every day at lunch, her second semester. And she continued to like fail or get D's on most of her tests. There was nothing I could do because this was all, this is, this is the standardized curriculum. This is the, the, the assessments that you will face. And this girl worked her butt off, uh, tutoring, asking questions, second semester, like really took it upon herself to, to work like crazy and ended up getting a two. And it was a year that I had for the first time, nearly a hundred percent pass rate. She was the only one who did not pass the exam. So if she would have left the class, I would have had the one time open enrollment, <laughs> massive classes, 100% pass rate. I could have been one of those jerks at one of these PDs saying, oh, I had a 100% pass rate <laughs> and in an urban school. And I could have, you know, rode that for, for years to come. I tracked her down at our school and I was like, dude, I'm proud of you. You didn't quit. She's like, no, I've been avoiding you because I thought you would be pissed. I'm like, hell no, I don't really care. I don't get any bonus because you pass or not pass. I care because you, you stuck it out where most of your homies were like, ducking out of AP classes, ducking out of even the regular classes, and you handled your business, do your thing. And she ended up going off to a four-year college, graduated. Sorry, would be perfect if she became a history teacher and all that stuff. <laughs> that didn't happen. We live at a time where so many teachers and students are so obsessed with these data points. And to be honest, the AP pass rate for my class doesn't get me up in the morning. And I've had the privilege for many years now to teach students that have so many difficult situations in their own lives and yet they stick with the crazy things I do in class, whether it be singing a song about uh, I'm a little teapot during the Boston Tea Party, uh, we do a <laughs> class song, class dance. Yeah. We, 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 we do all these ridiculous things. We do all these very difficult college level things. And this, 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 this moment with this girl who didn't pass and was scared to, to bump into me, made me really realize that, A, I created an environment where she felt comfortable enough to stay in a class that she was failing, but she was grateful that I believed in her. And it reminded me of why I do the job we do, and their value does not come from any test, college board or otherwise. And the value comes in being a good person, working hard, and believing in themselves and, and others and working to create that community of learners. It stands out to me for those reasons. And so I think that was one of my triumphs that really kind of solidifies the work that we do and the reason why I keep doing it. Triumphant indeed, my friend. And I should tell you, I have a number of listeners to this podcast who have been waiting for me to get on the other side of the microphone. And surely they would expect that in this theme season where I'm diving into the working lives of educators, this would be my moment. And I have a couple of former students and pals who I told, no, I'm not going to do it. There's a guy I'm going to try to get on the podcast who I would rather interview 
than to be interviewed myself. And to any of the naysayers out there who wanted to hear me talk about my process and my approach to working, having listened to you talk about your work, I'm sure they will agree that I made the right choice. Daniel Jose, it was a pleasure to dive into your working life with you. You're a tremendous fella, a world-class teacher, and a stand-up dude. And it was really heartening to hear you talk about what you do. And I, I again, I can't emphasize enough the degree to which I so strongly identify with what you're saying and how you feel about it. It sounds like you and I are both grappling with some of the same hopes, frustrations, expectations. You know, we're both about halfway through our careers, you know, different sides of the ocean, opposite sides of the earth, but we got the same struggles. But I think we also get some of the same joy, you know, and I think particularly in an American context, in part because of so many of the indignities that American teachers have to withstand, whether it's the class sizes, the standardized tests, the lack of safety in some cases, the humiliation in others. You know, a lot of American teachers, they really have to like lift their chests up and be super proud. They have, in some cases, kind of like a hero complex, which is born in my psychoanalytic read out of the fact that they have to develop some sort of like Stockholm syndrome in order to endure another day. And so they, they show up for work in love with the very beast that is chipping away at their soul. And they have to feel like that they're the heroes of the story because they get treated like villains so often. And, you know, you go on like the teacher Facebook page. So many teachers, they just struggle to like understand where work fits into their lives, right? And it's so easy for them to be emotionally overwhelmed because the nature of the work is just so overwhelming. You know, there's like small examples. I've never heard in Spain, in Berlin, of uh, teachers like talking about their students, like as their kids, like my kids. Like you and I are parents. We both have kids. Those are our kids. And I think it's beautiful and it's telling that so many American teachers are willing to refer to their students as their kids. I find it equal parts inspiring and daunting. But in either case, that little example seems to me to be illustrative of the nature of the work of the American teacher. You know, just another small example, and I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but just think about the vast number of American teachers, many of whom are criminally underpaid, who voluntarily purchase games and toys and candy and books and computers and projectors for their classrooms so that their kids can, <laughs> I call them kids, <laughs> how about that? So that their students can have the best possible learning environment. It's like there's so many swords for the American teacher to fall on, and so many of them 
have the courage and the audacity to fall on every single one. And again, I think there's something beautiful about it. But especially these days, when the classroom is once again like the pickleball of politicians and pundits, and teachers have to like grapple whether we talked about it for a quick second, like this tomfoolery around critical race theory. You know, it's also politicized. And these teachers and students, of course, are caught in the crossfire. Um, I just find it such an impossible working environment. Sorry, I'm, I'm babbling a little bit here, but I think I'm trying to get to this point. You're the only teacher in America slated to be on the podcast this season. And like listening to the way you talk, it's like a totally different working experience. And it, it's reminding me that uh, I should probably, even though I was trying to keep the season a little bit shorter, maybe I should get another American or two to further substantiate how different it is. Um, but anyway, man, I think you're, you're great. You know, the, the inspiration that you bring to these dialogues about education, you're a real cut above, Daniel. And uh, I'm so glad that you agreed to do this. I suppose all I could do now is let you get to your family. Appreciate you having me. And I think you should reconsider. You, are, uh, you, you should definitely uh, have, have yourself or have someone interview you because I, I, I love the way hearing you speak about education, even, even if you haven't been in the U.S. for two decades, just the experiences abroad and how they compare to what you kind of see happening, I think that lends itself to a certain perspective that is lacking. It's one thing for us that are in the trenches of U.S. education to kind of talk about it, but to, to see it as someone who's, who's had a, a foot in both worlds would be, I think, a, another treat for your listeners as well. Well, I do trust you. I got a lot of faith in your sense of what's right. So I will, based on that, and I do mean this, honestly reconsider. Daniel, it's been a real pleasure, man. I, I wish you health. I wish you wellness. Let's say I hope that we, you and I, and our colleagues around the world are able to come to terms with the fact that what we've been doing for the last year and a half isn't really online teaching. It's just triage. And heretofore, with some of the experiences that we've had, if we need to teach online, and it seems possible to say the least, that we can actually plan and be forward thinking and to not just be playing whack-a-mole with this app, that app, this responsibility, that responsibility, but to really like find ways to navigate the impossibility of it so that we can do it with, in my case, I'll say, a little more dignity than I did it last year. Perfectly stated. All right, brother. Thanks again. Please take care. Bye, man. Bye. Bye. I told you all at the beginning, Daniel Jose is a cut above. I was right, right? All right. So follow the show wherever you get podcasts and maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, head over to patreon.com studs and show a little love. Thank you all for all of your kind words and support. We'll be back in two weeks with the community college philosophy instructor, Shanti Chu. She's amazing.